and welcome back to American Policing Notes on the Scandal. I'm your host, Nicole Mann, and thank you so much for listening. You can find us on multiple platforms. We're on Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We're on Pandora. We're on Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere you can think to find us. We're there. I just want to thank you so much for listening. Now, as you know, last week we left off at the Zoot Suit Riots. This week we are going to jump right back in at the creation of the Gangster Squad, which was under Chief of Police Clement B. Horrell in 1946. It was originally 10 men that they recruited and like I said, it was known as the Gangster Squad. Along with fighting organized crime, they were tasked with spying on corrupt police officers. Criminals that they targeted were the likes of Mickey Cohen, Jack Dragna, Bugsy Siegel, Jack Whalen, and Jimmy Fratiano. Primary duties were to keep down these gangsters, keep down the killings and murders, and try and keep the rough guys under control. But they hadn't given the fellow LAPD cops any hint of what they were doing. If they joined the gangster squad, their targets would be the likes of the highest of high-end criminals and gangsters. Playboy refugees like Bugsy Siegel from what was known as New York's Murder, Inc. And Jack Dragana, the Sicilian banana importer who quietly lorded over the city's rackets. Then there was Mickey Cohen the dapper former prize fighter who had come to town as Bugsy's Muscle, but soon has his own cafe on North La Brea and a paint store nearby with three phones to take bets. That's where he'd shot a produce broker whose family ran a competing bookie racket. Mickey said the man came at him with a 45, and one found beside the body. There were no witnesses to contradict this story. It was me or him, Mickey was quoted as saying, so I let him have it. There had been three or more mob rubouts around LA since then, including the shotgunning of two Chicago men outside a Hollywood apartment. That one generated a gangsters in gambling war headline. This was a prime reason that police chief C.B. Horrell wanted these 10 cops to see what a Thompson submachine gun looked like. The deal was, if they signed on, they'd continue to be listed on the rosters of their old stations. They'd have no office, only two unmarked cars. They'd almost never make any arrests. They'd simply gather intelligence. And they'd be available for other quote-unquote chores. In effect, they just simply would not exist. Burns gave them a week to decide and take advice from people around them. An old lieutenant at the 77th said an assignment like that could get you in good with the chief, or you could end up down walking a beat in the fog. After the week, only seven came back, making a squad of eight, counting burns. We did a lot of things you'd get indicted for today, said Sergeant Jack O'Mara on the job for a and they were on the job doing this for a decade before J. Edgar Hoover's FBI even acknowledged the existence of the Mafia. They took on an anything-goes approach to making life hell 
specifically for Mickey Cohen and driving other characters out of Southern California. They used a lookalike pack bell truck to plant bugs and screw warrants. They did secret favors for Jack Webb, who glorified the LAPD on the Dragnet TV show. They stole evidence from mobsters and neutralized a news reporter who was giving them bad headlines. And Jack O'Mara personally set a trap for Mickey Cohen to prove he was a killer. There were a few close calls though, a grand jury investigation, lawsuits, and a skeptical chief or two. But they endured throughout the 1950s. And then that's when one of their cases changed the ground rules for policing in California when one of their own, Jerry Wooters, the most, regress- the most reckless of them, grew far too friendly with LA's homegrown hoodlum, Jack the Enforcer, Waylon. When the Enforcer made the mistake of confronting Mickey and his crew at a hangout in the valley, he received a bullet between the eyes, and that signaled the gangster squad's time as being over. William Wharton headed up the LAPD in 1949. He increased the size of the team and he renamed it the Intelligence Division. William Parker became chief of the police in 1950. He expanded the team even more, adding a female field team, female to the field team. And just so you know, um, the Intelligence Division, uh, they still exist. They just obviously are not allowed to use these kind of tactics. Um, But so the gangster squad turned into what we know now as the intelligence division, obviously, that they still have going in um, LAPD. So other than the gangsters heavy fisted and ham handed tactics that they used to try and drum all of organized crime out of Los Angeles. The next major scandal that they saw was with um, a brothel owner. Now, the major brothel owner at the time was Anne Forrest. She was known as the Black Widow. She, however, was caught and sentenced to serve time for pandering. However, she turned over her organization to one of her protégés, Brenda Allen. She was born Marie Mitchell and went under a number of aliases, including Brenda Allen Burns, Marie Brooks, Marie Cash, Brenda Burris, and Marie Lenick. She wasted no time in setting up her own prostitution ring. She did learn a few things from her two years working as a prostitute for Anne Forrest. Allen made several changes. She concentrated on catering to high-class clientele and screened her customers carefully. She paid her girls a decent wage and saw to it that they lived in comfort. Many of Ann Forrest's former employees came to work for her. She was a teetotaler with a slight southern draw. She was always well-dressed and well-groomed, and she never appeared in public without perfectly manicured nails and dark glasses. Now, this woman is based on... um, Kim Basinger's character in L.A. Confidential, the L.A. Confidential book was written based on this scandal. And when I say she was well-dressed, she was not dressed anything like the way they made Kim Basinger up. If you uh, look at pictures of her, 
she was dressed more like a secretary or more like the way that female, that handful of female executives or professionals were dressed back then. She always had very form-fitting suits on. She had hats on. She had, you know, the short heels on that they wore in the day. That was her outfit. She always wore dark silhouettes. That was her go-to um, dress code whenever she was out. Um, she treated everyone with unfailing politeness. By 1948, Ellen was taking out ads in Hollywood trade papers for her escort service, which featured over a hundred girls. Like Forrest, Ellen protected her business from shutdown and other problems by paying off members of the LAPD. She loved to brag that she had been arrested 18 times, but never served a day in jail. Unlike Forrest, her professional protection had a personal side to it. Allen became romantically involved with Sergeant Elmer V. Jackson of the LAPD's Vice Squad, who became her lover and business partner. For protection from raids and other legal actions, Allen paid Jackson $50 a week, which, if adjusted for inflation, is roughly $540 a week nowadays. For each woman she employed, for each woman she employed, and she employed over a hundred women, over a hundred women, okay? She could easily afford to do this as her team was bringing in between $4,500 a day and $4,700 a day. That's the equivalent of a roughly $85,000 a day today. $85,000 a day. Allen took a 50% cut from her profits and 30% went to paying off cops, doctors, lawyers, judges, and bail bondsmen who provided protection and other favors. The rest of the income from the ring was divided amongst the girls. Even with all this overhead, the girls were still paid well by Sanders of the day. Allen also had protection of a less legal sort, whereas Ann Forrest had connections to Jack Dragna and Johnny Rosselli, Allen's mob connections were to Mickey Cohen and Bugsy Siegel. Ironically, it was because Dragna and Rosselli's decision to divvy up vice operations in Los Angeles that Allen ended up under the thumb of two of the most ruthless members of organized crime on the West Coast. If a call girl or a client made a wrong move, they would wind up disfigured or even dead. Allen was well aware that she could suffer the same fate. Interestingly enough, Mickey Cohen claimed during a 1949 trial that Sergeant Elmer Jackson, Allen's business partner, and Lieutenant Rudy Wellpot were constantly extorting him. Brenda Allen's illegal empire became the subject of scrutiny due to an unexpected random occurrence, a crime in which she was the intended victim. On the evening of February 21st, 1947, Allen and Jackson were sitting in Jackson's car in front of Allen's apartment at 9th and Fedora Streets. Suddenly, Roy Pee Wee Lewis stuck a gun through an open window of the car and demanded money. Jackson pretended to reach for his wallet, but instead pulled out a pistol. He then shot and killed Pee Wee. Although Jackson had protected Allen and himself, he had exposed his relationship and others in the LAPD. Jackson told responding officers 
that Allen was a police stenographer. But someone in the press who covered the story realized that Jackson Sweetheart was definitely not a police stenographer. LAPD officials became suspicious and placed wiretaps on Allen's phone and surveillance on her. A raid was conducted on a house at 8436 Herald Way, just above Sunset Boulevard. It was one of the sites used by Allen's girls. Police confiscated a box of index cards on which were recorded names, addresses, phone numbers, and notes regarding the sexual predilections of over 200 notables of the film industry. Brenda Allen was arrested and charged with pandering. The Los Angeles Times headline of May 5, 1948 read, Names found in Vice Raid Rock Hollywood. It is interesting to note that during the trial in which the box of cards was on an exhibit, Judge Joseph Call ordered that the box be sealed because in the box are names of dignitaries of the screen and radio and executives of responsible positions in many great industries. Publication of their names would be ruinous to their careers and cause them great public disgrace. Whereas her customers were spared further scrutiny, Brenda Allen was not. While law enforcement officials wanted to charge Allen with pandering, they simply could not get anyone to admit to any coercion or intimidation on the part of the vice queen. Whereas Anne Forrest girls had gladly given testimony that put, their, put her behind bars, not a single one of Allen's girls spoke out against her. Allen treated her girls and her staff members so well that they protected her. The LAPD wiretapped Allen's phone and now instructed Audra Davis, a female police officer, to call and pretend to be a woman interested in becoming a prostitute. This was an attempt to set up Allen for the charge of pandering. Davis gave testimony under oath to a grand jury that Allen solicited her in exchange for sex and money. Allen denied the charge. The judge found Allen guilty and sentenced her to five years in jail. At her trial, Allen testified about the payoffs she made to police for protection, exposing her lover, Sergeant Jackson, and Hollywood Vice Squad Sergeant Charles Stoker as the main recipients of the money. She not only made claims against the members of the LAPD, but provided financial records to prove her claims. Interestingly enough, Jackson did not speak out against her or offer a single incriminating word about her. He apparently truly did love her. Months after the trial, Policewoman Davis recanted her testimony, admitting everything she said under oath was a lie. The account she gave in court was a complete and total fabrication, fabrication designed to entrap Brenda Allen. In May of 1949, Allen appeared in court with an appeal to have her sentence reduced. Less than four months later, on Friday, September 2nd, 1949, Allen was released from jail on order of the California Supreme Court. It was noted that she had been a model prisoner. She returned to incarceration, however, in 1951, to serve the remainder of her eight-month sentence. 
Brenda Allen served less than one year in prison. Sergeant Jackson was demoted but managed to stay on the force until he retired in the 60s. Vice Squad Sergeant Charles Stoker was fired from the LAPD when he was charged with burglary, a charge he claimed was trumped up and resulted in a hung jury at his 1949 trial. Allen's last appearance in the papers was in 1969 when, amidst accusations of domestic violence, she divorced her husband, a former Navy pilot named Robert Cash. Cash married Allen, who was going by the name of Mary Mitchell and was working as a hairdresser and knew nothing of her background or history. Upon finding out that she was the notorious vice queen, he promptly sought to end the marriage. One upshot of the Allen raid and trial was that city officials finally focused on ending the systematic corruption that was prevalent in the Los Angeles Police Department at the time. Police Chief Horrell was replaced by a retired Marine named William A. Wharton, who acted as interim chief until 1950, when William Parker became chief of police. Horrell and Assistant Chief Joe Reed resigned in 1949 after threat of a grand jury investigation related to the Brenda Allen scandal. Several of Horrell and Reed's more enduring actions were things such as the creation of a radio show about LAPD called Dragnet, which you will know as the TV show that starred Jack Webb. Horrell was then replaced by retired Marine Wharton, who, act, um, as I said earlier, acted as interim chief until Parker was chosen in a very tight competition between himself and Thad Brown. Parker advocated for police professionalism and autonomy from civilian administration, especially as it concerned eternal affairs, meaning he didn't want outside people that were not involved in the police to be involved in investigating police actions. The bloody Christmas scandal in 1951 led to calls for civilian accountability and an end to police brutality in the city itself. So now we're going to move into the bloody Christmas scandal. The reason this is important is because this is the very first time that the LAPD was publicly held accountable for accusations of police brutality. On December 25, 1951, approximately 50 Los Angeles Police Department officers brutally beat seven young men in their custody, including five Mexican-Americans. The ensuing controversy became known as Bloody Christmas. Mexican-American activists demanded investigations into the allegations of police brutality and LAPD accountability be handed over to civilian control. The LAPD's new chief, William Parker, however, had just launched a reform campaign based on police professionalism, which stressed sole police autonomy, particularly about internal discipline. Parker and his allies in the city government stifled external investigations into department manners that vilified LAPD critics and even ignored perjury by officers. They thus helped create an organizational culture that valued LAPD independence above the rule of the law and led to LAPD's estrangement from the Mexican-American and other minority communities. Officers Julius L. Trojanowski and Nelson L. Brownson 
went to a cafe where the proprietor reported he was having difficulty getting a group of young men to leave. When the officers told the group to leave, one of them said, we outnumber you, so what are you going to do about it? When the group reportedly jumped the officers during the melee, Trojanowski's nightstick was wrested from him and reportedly he was beaten severely about the face and head. Brownson had a thumb fracture. After beating the officers, the group fled in an automobile. Trojanowski states that he noted the license number while he and Brownson were being treated at the Georgia Street Receiving Hospital. The other officers went to 2850 Glen Eden Street where they arrested one Leo Rodella, 21 years old. They also quickly rounded up where Jack Wilson, 21, and his brother Billy, 22, and Ray Marquez, 22, Manuel Hernandez, 22, Eddie Nora, 23, were, and they were all booked at the city jail on suspicion of assault with a deadly weapon. Later, when he returned home, Rodella's brother Dan was arrested. The LAPD desperately tried to keep the story out of the news. Chief William Parker did institute some sort of reform at the department, but at the time he was also quoted as saying, I think the greatest dislocated minority in America today are the police. Obviously, this did not help him. The Los Angeles media quickly changed its tune over the next few months after more people came forward with allegations of police brutality. The Mexican-American community demanded an investigation. The young men eventually went to trial in March of 1952 for the scuffle with Trojanowski and Brownson. Some were charged and found guilty of assaulting a police officer and disturbing the peace. The presiding judge, Call, colorfully said of the LAPD's side of the story, quote, This testimony stinks to high heaven and all of the perfume in Arabia cannot obliterate its stench, end quote. This trial prompted an FBI investigation into the LAPD. Between the FBI and LAPD's own internal investigation, over 400 witnesses provided statements that lifted the veil on the real Bloody Christmas story. The seven men said that after proving they were old enough to drink, the officers still demanded that they leave the bar. When Jack Wilson refused, Trojanowski began to beat him with his baton. The fight continued outside and ended when a nearby resident appeared with a shotgun and told them to stop. The men took off and went to Daniel Rodella's home. Rodella then drove away to take time to think. On Christmas morning, the six were brought to Central Station by three squad cars, where over 100 on- and off-duty police officers were drinking at a holiday party. The seventh, Daniel Rodella, was taken to Ellison Park. Officers Robert Sanchez and William Bennett did not have a warrant, so Rodella, who was home with his children and pregnant wife, refused to open the door. The officers kicked his door in. His neighbors testified that the 90-pound Rodella was dragged by his hair and beaten in the parking lot before thrown in the squad car. At Ellison Park, 
he was beaten with a baton, punched, kicked, and elbowed. Rodella's doctor said he was near death and had temporary paralysis, permanent organ damage, and required two blood transfusions. Officer Sanchez changed his story multiple times, claiming they never stopped at the park, and his own defense attorney admitted, and I quote, my client, Sanchez, just isn't intelligent, end quote. Back at the Christmas party, the machismo rumor mill churned out a false story that Trojanowski had lost an eye in the fight and his drunken co-workers wanted vengeance. It alleged that upon the six men's arrival, one policeman said, oh, here are the cop killers now. The six men were taken to separate cells in an isolation ward where about 50 police officers took turns beating them over the course of 95 minutes. The victims, who sustained serious injuries, were only able to positively identify seven of the officers as a group because they spent most of their time shielding their faces from the attack. They only had... They said just two police officers of over 100 present tried to save them, one of which said, Oh, for fuck's sake, boys, cut it out. What a hero. Great. The other officer was a friend of one man's mother-in-law. When he tried to save the man, the officer was dragged out of the cell by the other officers. The victims lost so much blood that the officers were slipping in it while laughing. They had to summon a janitor in to try and mop it up. Ray Marquez testified that they would holler, Merry Christmas and then slug us. One would lift me up in the air, drop me, and as I came down, he'd knee me while another one would punch me in the stomach. Elias Rodella testified that after the beatings, the cops told us to pack up our stuff and our families and get out of town and then get out of the country. On April 23rd, 1952, there was enough evidence to indict and arrest eight officers. The victims were all able to give matching, detailed accounts of the events, but the LAPD officers and their employees' presence gave vague, contradictory statements. Some claimed there was no mistreatment. Others said there was violence, but were unable to identify anyone. A lot of the stories changed from officers' previous accounts of the night. By the end of 1952, five officers were convicted and Chief Parker transferred 54 more, while 39 were suspended without pay. Superior Judge Thomas L. Ambrose said, I am unable to approach this case with any charity at all. These men were taken out one at a time like animals in a trap with no possible way in which they could defend themselves. Officers Robert Sanchez and William Bennett, the ones who allegedly beat Daniel Rodella in Elysian Park, were acquitted. Lieutenant Harry Fremont was found innocent of beatings but was suspended for 90 days for failing to stop them and allowing alcohol at a Christmas party. Officer Lauren P. Cowell was initially sentenced to six months in jail for simple assault. 
but his sentencing was reduced to a $500 fine and three years of probation. Officer William C. McCafferty, 24, was sentenced to two years in county jail. Officer Charles E. Minter was sentenced to three years and served two. Officer Ray A. Lance was charged with three counts of felony assault. It's not clear how much time, if any, he served. Now, like I said, this resulted in police reform at the time due to the huge public outcry. And this was the very first time that the LAPD was publicly charged with police brutality. Now, Parker, this was the first of many scandals he would face. Now, next, in our next episode, we are going to look how black flight affected the socioeconomic makeup of the city of Los Angeles and how, under Parker's lead, the LAPD dealt with it. You've seen how up to this point, the LAPD was mostly focusing on how to deal with what they felt was the Mexican-American problem in the city of Los Angeles. While with black flight from the South, many people of color felt that they had a better shot at a better life in California with the promise of stardom or just jobs working in the entertainment industry. So they came to Los Angeles, creating what was known as Black Flight. With this new issue, LAPD had to change their tactics. We'll look further into what was created as contain and detain. Some people see it as a way of turning what was known as Watts, well, still is Watts, as a reverse sundown town with extraordinarily strict curfews that the police use brutal tactics to enforce. This eventually led to the 63 Watts riots which went on to create $40 million in damage to the city of Los Angeles overall. So, like I said, in the next episode, we will get much, much more into the socioeconomic impact of black flight in Los Angeles, how Parker used contain and detain to deal with what he thought was the problem of what he referred to as Negro refugees in Los Angeles and the effect that it had on the community in Los Angeles. Now, for those of you who don't know, I do have another podcast called Psych Your Crime. And with Thanksgiving coming this Thursday, I'm going to do a double header of Worst Family Ever with two horrible crimes that will make you absolutely grateful for the family that you have now. So, you can head on over to Psych or Crime. It's available on all the same pot, uh, platforms that this one is. And in the meantime, I hope that you can join me again next week as we try and learn something about the LAPD from the notes on their scandals.